uh, we've been studying uh, from the book of First Timothy, our text, our, our uh, task, our goal is to go through the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus um, in a conceptual sense and looking at some of the texts that's there through the year. Um, and in that study, we have talked about godliness, uh, and at least in this month, talking about the aspect of training ourselves for godliness. Uh, I find that sometimes uh, that in my uh, looking at uh, presenting lessons and deciding what I will teach on, that sometimes my studies sort of collide, or at least they maybe they collide, maybe they intersect, maybe they intersect and then they collide. And, um, and the, what I mean by that is that your focus in one particular uh, part of the scriptures uh, kind of meets, in a, meets a, your other study where you're studying at other places and it sort of brings things together. Um, and I find that uh, exciting sometimes when that happens because it expands my ability to uh, understand the subject and also all the opportunities maybe to uh, teach on it from a different perspective. Uh, from a practical standpoint, we've talked about what godliness looks like from the standpoint of its definition. Godliness is, I believe, a, a word in the scriptures, Eusebius, which means the, the idea of devotion to God or piety. And we particularly looked at it from the concept of it means that a, a godly person is a person who desires to please God in all things, uh, that he wants in every part of his life uh, to be approved by God, and that's the godly person. Uh, what I found in terms of studying, uh, of um, sort of studies colliding is that in the seven lace class, we're studying through Genesis. And in that particular class, we have come uh, to the life of Joseph and beginning to talk about Joseph from Genesis chapter 37. And when we began studying that, and I was thinking about what I'd been preaching on, I sensed a collision, uh, and it sort of happened. And so I want to sort of explore that particular connection uh, this morning, if you allow me, and that is continue to talk about godliness, but look at it from the practical standpoint of the example of the life of Joseph. In a sense, the story of Joseph is a story about us. It's certainly a story for us. Not only in the sense of its connection to the seed promise of the Old Testament, Jesus' reflection of Jesus as our Messiah, uh, but that Joseph in many regards, uh, I think, reflects how life goes for people. Uh, And we're included in that. And that things have a particular direction and all of a sudden that direction changes. Uh, or that things can be going well and then things all of a sudden are not going well at all. And we're faced with challenges and choices that we have to make of how we will react to that. And Joseph, that happened several different times in his life. Uh, it's fascinating to me that uh, the, the book of Genesis is a book about the patriarchs, about the life of the patriarchs. Um, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, who usually come to our mind when we think about patriarchs, and yet the book of Genesis, over half of the book of Genesis... Uh, talks about the life of Joseph. More, there's more text about Joseph's life than there is about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. I don't believe that's uh, an accident. I believe that's by design that God would give us so much information about the life of Joseph from the time that he was a young man to the ultimately to the end of his life, because there is in this particular story of Joseph a lot about the element of uh, making choices to serve God, or what we might think of as the aspect of the choices of godliness. So let's rehearse a little bit. We're all familiar with the story of Joseph. It begins in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph was the grandson. Uh, he was the great-grandson of Abraham. He was one of 12 sons that were born to Jacob. He was one of two sons that were born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. 
And what it tells us early in the text is that Joseph was daddy's favorite. That Joseph was, you see, of all the sons, he was the one maybe who most reminded him, Jacob, of Rachel, but certainly he was one that was going to be provided with a lot of blessings from his father up and over and above those that were given to the other sons. Because of that favoritism, Joseph did not have a very good relationship with his siblings. There were time, it tells us in, the, in chapter 37, the first three verses, the verses there, that Joseph was the kind of sibling that was willing to tell, to tell on, his, on his brothers. And so he brought a bad report about his brothers. Again, that doesn't make well for the relationship that you have with your brothers. It tells us there as well that Jacob himself, as the father, was willing to visibly display his favoritism for his son Joseph, and he made him a multicolored coat. Uh, that he didn't make for the other boys. And we think about multicolored garments, uh, many colored garments, that doesn't mean much to us. This room is full of multicolored garments. We wear them all the, day, all the time. But in Joseph's time, that was, a, a, that was certainly an element of great wealth and prestige for someone to have a robe or a garment that was, that was more than one color. Dyes were expensive. Uh, it took a process to, to, to change the color um, uh, of a garment uh, where it would be permanently changed. Uh, some of the Hebrew texts would indicate that it was not only uh, multicolored, but that some translations say long sleeve. Uh, so this was a robe type of garment. Maybe not something you'd wear on every occasion, but for special occasions. And the fact that it was many colors certainly was to present this aspect that it was this was his favorite son. So it was treasured. And then, you see, that, of course, exasperated the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. They envied him, they hated him, and then there were the dreams. And I wonder sometimes about uh, how God allows things to escalate from the standpoint of the hatred of Joseph. Joseph's brothers for Joseph, but then there's the dreams here that uh, may or may not have been coming from the Lord, but certainly presented in prophetic sense what was going to happen in Joseph's life. Joseph told his brothers he dreamed about he and his he and his brothers out in the field binding sheaves together, and his sheaves stood up, and all of their sheaves bowed down to his sheep. They didn't like that. But then he had another dream, and he told them about that dream. And that dream was that he was, you see, in a field, and here were the sun, the, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars, and they all bowed down to him. The sun and the moon and the stars. And I, I wonder sometimes what maybe possessed Joseph to tell his brothers these dreams and was he so naive that he didn't think that, that, that they really that this would really cause a problem for them or was he, is he a little bit braggadocious or he just wanted to maybe uh, make a point about uh, his favoritism to his brothers whatever the reason was even his father recognized that this was causing a problem and he rebuked Joseph and said right, your mom and I we're going to bow down to you too but the text tells us there that he kept these things in his heart. Um, but his, for his brothers, they just hated him even more. Well, how much did they hate him? It says in verse 37 that Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him afar off, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. They conspired to kill him. You know, I have three brothers. 
And there were times when we didn't get along very well. And there were probably times when I threatened to kill them. I know there were times when they threatened to kill me. But we never meant it. We were really in a position of our relationship, however strained it might have been, where we would actually conspire to kill each other. Now, we might have sold each other if the price was right. But here's Joseph. He is so hated by his brothers that when they see him coming from afar off, they said, let's do it. Let's put him to death. Just get rid of him. We'll see what becomes of him. The idea here of this hatred to death, this hating someone without cause, is an integral element of the gospel story itself. It pushes ahead when we begin to think about Jesus, about his own life and who he was and his relationship to his brothers. That Jesus, that Joseph was in many regards a type of Jesus. One who was hated without cause. One who people so despised that they would conspire over a period of time to actually put him to death. Now what I want us to think about a little bit is not just this aspect of, uh, of the hatred that, they, that Joseph's brothers have for him. But how he responds to that or how he deals with that hatred. You know, in the whole scene about them throwing him into the pit, Judah intercedes, his brothers cast Joseph into a pit. Then Judah suggests, well, you know, he is our brother, but there's no, there's no reason to kill him. Let's just sell him. Here come some Ishmaelite traders along the way. We can just sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. And that's what takes place. Joseph's brothers go down into the pit and they drag him out. And they exchange him for money and send him on his way. So the Ishmaelite traders then become Joseph's new family. Now I think this is, this, is a, uh, uh, this is profound from the standpoint of human experience. What a difference a day makes. One day you're the favorite son. You've got the multicolored coat. Your dad will give you anything you want. You're the one you see who's, who's in terms of life ahead looks pretty good. But there's this hatred your brothers have for you. Maybe that you're naive to or that you're ignoring or maybe you're even agging on a little bit, but it's not something that really threatens you to the point that it would change the direction of your life. And now, you've lost it all. Now you are a slave of a foreign people on the way to a foreign land. They took Joseph to Egypt. The boys dipped Joseph's coat in goat's blood, took it to their father and said, we found this on the field. Is this your boys? And Joseph and Jacob immediately recognized the coat. And the text tells us there he began grieving with it, seeing no end in sight, that he would go to his grave grieving for his son that he believed to be dead. He refused to be comforted. Now what I want to look at from the standpoint of understanding where this story is is what could we expect of Joseph at this particular point? If this is his life story, and that's what the text would present to us, is this very detailed account of how Joseph gets to Egypt. If this is his life story, what can we expect of him? Could we expect of him to be someone who would serve God? Could, he, could we expect him to fill the role of the patriarch of someone you see he would be dedicated to the promises of God? If there's anyone... In, in the biblical story who had an excuse to say I'm done with this I'm not serving God anymore I'm finished it would have been Joseph he had every excuse at his disposal 
He's alone. He has no family. There's no one to support him. No one else around him was going to be serving God. Everybody around him was going to be serving pagan gods or not care about God at all. He's been betrayed by his own brothers, those closest to him. And those kind of experiences are not easy to get over. Well, I would serve God, but do you know how badly I've been treated? The people that claim to be Christians did this to me. You ever heard those stories? This is the way I was treated. Can you expect that I would still have the same feelings toward God or toward the church or towards other Christians But when this has happened to me? Joseph may very well have been tempted to resent his own father for not coming to rescue him. It doesn't indicate that he was privy to the fact that Jacob had been deceived and thought he was dead. Why doesn't my father come get me? Why doesn't he rescue me? Does he not care? And certainly Joseph was faced with the perspective that there was no way he was ever going to get back on his own. If someone didn't come get him, he was forever caught in the aspect of being a slave in a foreign land. But his father never came. His brother never changed their mind and came to rescue him. Joseph was where he was. Would he serve God in that context? How could he serve God in that context? He'd lost every vestige of his inheritance and its prosperity. And so there are a lot of folks who say, well, yeah, I served God at one time. I was a Christian. Things were going pretty well. And then this happened. And I lost my job and I lost my family. And things could never be the same again. There was just no way back. Or the idea that this happened and therefore God doesn't care about me anymore. If God cared about me, if it really was some profit to serving God, some value in serving God, this would not have happened. <clears throat> Who would have expected Joseph to serve God? And yet that may very well be precisely why this particular story is so pronounced in the Old Testament text. Because this is not a story of serving God when things are well. It's not a story of being a servant of God when things are going your way. This is a story of godliness put to the test. Godliness that's that's exemplified in the choices that people make when those choices are the least likely to be made. And there's every obstacle in the way. So despite these very difficult circumstances, Joseph made choices. In verse 39... It tells us there that after a time, his master's wife, and that's Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, again, I introduce this text because it's just a single event in the life of Joseph that's given to us. But despite the different circumstances about being a slave in an Egyptian household, Joseph was successful. It says in the text that God was with him, that God blessed him, and that he excelled above all the others that are his household. So much so that Potiphar said, I'll put you in charge of anything. Potiphar realized that Joseph was doing things that brought about the blessings of his own house, and so he elevated him. And in all of these choices that he made, however many there might have been that would have been reflected in the house of Potiphar, these were choices that focused on the aspect of his relationship to God. And so Joseph is presented to us in this text as having two very desired qualities. He was successful. And he was good looking. And Potiphar's wife noticed both. This is the fellow who gets things done, and he's good looking. So she set out to have him. 
And this sets the stage, you see, for what we just read about the choice that Joseph would make to not give in to the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. The classic case of sexual harassment from the man's standpoint and the aspect that Joseph would be sexually harassed over and over again day after day and always respond to it in a godly way and then when it came down to the to the point to the moment of temptation to have the courage to say no and to run off and leave his coat behind as he fled in the presence of the temptation <coughs> Potiphar's wife gathered the coat up called the servants in and said it's Hebrew it's Hebrew that my master put here. He's taken advantage of me. Potiphar didn't like that, so he threw him in prison. But I'd like you to notice in this text, I think, two things that we often point out, and that is, why did Joseph make the choice to not give in to Potiphar's wife? The other side of that is to recognize that this was not a nominal temptation. There are a lot of reasons why Joseph could have said yes. A lot of reasons that very well would pass through the minds of you and I today and others of today from the standpoint of the circumstances. What else have I got? I'm, I've been, I'm in charge of everything here. I can have whatever I want. Who could, who should with, why should I withhold this from myself? I deserve this. I've suffered enough. But he gives two reasons. He says to Mrs. Potiphar, he says, you are his wife. You are his wife. I will not betray my master. Joseph was a man of loyalty, a man of character, an individual who understood that what belonged to him belonged to him, but what didn't belong to him didn't belong to him, and that he had a stewardship that he had to be faithful towards. Again, this is reflective of what God had taught Joseph and Joseph's own relationship with his true master. So he says to Mrs. Potiphar, I can have everything in this house except you, because Potiphar has a wife and you're his wife. And he's your husband. But then, I think as a corollary to that and maybe as a more spiritual perspective of that, Joseph says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know, many of the pagans, those who served other gods, had a sense of morality when it came to offending other people. That even in the religions of, of the pagans, there was this aspect, you ought to treat another person well, and if you, if, if you fail in your stewardship, you fail to do what is right to somebody else, there was a price to pay about all of that. So there was an ethical sense from the standpoint of how you would reflect, to, uh, how would you relate to other individuals. But among the pagans in terms of their religion, the polytheists, there was not a, there was not a strong ethical sense about being responsible to the god because the gods that they served were not highly moral characters. Gods were fickle, they did bad things, they did evil things, they might very well take away your farm or ruin your, or ruin your crops for any particular arbitrary reason. So you had no real desire to not offend them except as how it might reflect upon your own prosperity. You didn't want to make them mad, but you didn't, want, you, you didn't worry about offending them because they were good moral characters. But now Joseph has a different sense. And I think we have to recognize that in the context of where Joseph's at and the people that are around him. Maybe even who he's saying this to. That would she understand what Joseph was saying when he says, I can't sin against my God. This is great wickedness against God himself. That's godliness on display. That's at the very heart of the aspect of godliness. Godliness is more than righteousness, just doing what's right. Rather, it's living with the consciousness that God is all around and that I am accountable to God. 
That's what Joseph had. He had a sense that God was there and that God was watching over him and that God, there was all-seeing eye watching over him all the time and that God cared about all of this. Joseph understood that God sees and God knows and God cares. And that's, again, at the very heart of the idea of godliness. And that's not a difficult concept. Even children recognize and understand this God-conscious approach to life. Well, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Well, be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Why? There's an all-seeing eye watching you. Father up above is looking down from tender love. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. We teach that to our children, that God is always conscious, that we are always to be conscious of the fact that God is around us. That's the concept of godliness. I don't know how early Joseph learned that in his life, but it's certainly on display here. At this moment of crisis, the moment of when he has to choose between morality and immorality, it's the aspect of the consciousness that God is watching him that makes the difference. Motivates the choices that he makes. You know, I find it interesting that this young Joseph understood something that even the old prophet Jonah didn't understand. Now, Jonah understood God, and he certainly understood that God was speaking to him. And there's no evidence that Jonah served other gods, that he was a polytheist. But he seemed to hold a view of God that the polytheists of his own day, or the pagans of his own day, may very well have held. We talk about monotheism. Monotheism is the belief in one God. Polytheism is the belief in many gods. But not all polytheists, not all people who believed that they were more than one God, made an attempt to serve all the gods. If you were a polytheist, you didn't go around and build, build a statue to every god. You couldn't count all of the gods. And there was really no reason to serve all the gods because not all the gods were concerned about you. And therefore, you weren't concerned about all the other gods. Gods, you see, had... Jurisdiction. Curtis Pope introduced me to a word that describes that approach. Henotheism. Henotheism means that each God has its own jurisdiction. So there's a God of the sun. There's a, there, there's a God of the sea. There's a God of the mountains. There's a God of the, uh, of the prairies. There's a God, you see, of, of the storm and the rain. There's a God of death and the underworld. There's a God of Babylon. There's a God of Egypt. There's a God who cares about Israel. There's a God who doesn't care about Babylon. All the gods have their jurisdiction. And then you think about Jonah. You see, here's a prophet of the God of Israel who has a concept about God that belongs, you see, among the polytheists, the henotheists, who says, I'm going to get away from him. Yeah, he can serve here, but I can get outside, you see, his jurisdiction. And so Jonah tried to get out of the presence of the Lord. He failed. He failed. You see, because Jehovah God is not fettered with any jurisdiction. He sees everything. He sees all. He knows all, He sees all, and He cares about all. And so we cannot get out of His jurisdiction. Everything that we do is going to be seen by Him. We have to understand that as Christians. That's at the very heart of godliness. God is going to know what you do in the backseat of a car. He's going to know what you do down by the riverbank, at the church house, with your family or outside your family, when you're on vacation or when you're home. There is no place to go to get outside your jurisdiction of the God that we serve. The proverb writer says in Proverbs uh, chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on all the evil 
on the good. The 139th Psalm is a treatise on this aspect of the what we sometimes call the omniscience of God, or the aspect of God's jurisdiction over the creation that he has, particularly as it relates to his own people. The psalmist says, Lord, you have stretched me and uh, you, have, you have searched me and know me. You know where I sit down. You know where I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day and darkness and light are alike to you. Now that's a simple concept, isn't it? God's everywhere. You can't hide from Him. And yet that's precisely the element that makes the difference in Joseph's life. That perception being something that he lives by every day and that he never forgets is what gives him the ability to be successful in the hours of great temptation and to do the things that God would want him to do rather than things that God does not want him to do. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrew chapter 4, verse 13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. Now, that's Joseph's life. But you see, doing the right thing didn't make things better in the immediate context. He chooses not to be unfaithful and take Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar throws him in prison for it. You think there were times when Joseph thought, wait a minute, this is, this is, not, this is working backwards here. I thought if I served God, I was supposed to be blessed. Things were supposed to go well. And now I serve God. Every time I do make the right choice, I'm punished for it. You think you ever thought, maybe I had to start doing the other thing? Maybe I had to try it the other way around? But then we fast forward in Joseph's life to Genesis chapter 50. In Genesis time we get to Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt. He's been reunited with his brothers and with his father. He's been able to bring his family back to Egypt or to, with him to Egypt. Now they all live, all of the 75 people in Joseph's family live in the best land of Egypt. But it didn't happen overnight. Again, those things that came about at the end of Joseph's life were the fruit of the decisions that he made, what I believe were godly decisions, and the context of the suffering. You may remember what transpired between Potiphar's prison and Pharaoh's right hand. While he was in prison, Joseph interpreted dreams of two fellow prisoners, one a former baker and another a former butler of Pharaoh. In Genesis chapter 40, and they said to him, We each had a dream, and there is no interpretation of it. So Joseph said to him, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. (laughs) I'm fascinated by the fact that here's Joseph in prison. And his life is still focused on the aspect of the sovereignty of God. And that he knows that God has the answers. That God is the one who can give even the aspect of the interpretation of this dream. That's not within Joseph to make it up. Or to guess at it. That God would provide an interpretation. And God provides for that. And so... Joseph still realizes that God's the one who sees and God's the one who knows and God's the one who cares. 
Joseph then provides for these two gentlemen the interpretation of their dreams, one favorable and one unfavorable, which I think, again, is fascinating. You know, when somebody tells you a dream and you, and you want to get them on your side, then must always you give the favorable one, right? I mean, and that's kind of what happens in the story. He gives the, he gives, he gives the interpretation uh, to the butler and says, you know, it's a little while. You're going to be restored to the position. You're going to be, you, the, the favorable is going to put his cup back in your hand. It's going to turn out pretty good. And the baker sitting there thinking about his dream says, Oh, wait a minute. Tell me, what's going to happen to me? Well, you, you're going to lose your head. You're going to die. Wait a minute. You said he was going to get out. I'm not. You see, it wasn't up to Joseph. It wasn't a matter of trying to figure out what might happen or might not happen. Joseph was completely relying upon God for the good and for the bad. And so Genesis chapter 40 tells us there that in verse 21 that he restored the chief butler to his butlership again and he placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him. So Joseph tells it just the way the father the God gave it to them. He provides the accurate information for the interpretation of the dreams and it comes out just the way Joseph said that it would and what did Joseph get out of it? He gets forgotten. It's interesting to me that, as well that when you look at Joseph's approach to this aspect of his ability to give the interpretation of the dream, he sees them hoping it for him. Please remember me. When this thing turns out the way I'm saying it turned out, don't forget about me. Remember me and mention me because I have done nothing wrong to be here. That's what he said. I didn't do anything wrong. Just remember me. I'm being treated unjustly. But the butler forgets about Joseph. And he's betrayed again. And for two whole years he sits in prison wondering whether or not there's any profit to serving God. At least he could have been wondering that. I don't know what Joseph was wondering. But for two years he's betrayed. Again, he's forgotten. But then Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret it. And the butler remembers. He says, oh, I've been neglectful here. I should have remembered this. There's a Hebrew in prison who interpreted my dream, interpreted the dream of the baker, and it turned out just exactly the way it said that it was. And Pharaoh says, get him, clean him up, and bring him here. And Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a dream. Seven fat cows come out of the river, followed by seven skinny. The King James uses the word ugly and gaunt. Seen some of those cows, haven't you? <laughs> out, out in the middle of Florida, you look out in the pasture, you see a little ugly, gaunt cow, and you think, there's not enough, there's not enough for that cow to feed on out in that pasture. Seven of these ugly gaunt cows come up out of the river and they eat up the fat cows. They don't get any fatter. They're still just as ugly. But they eat up the fat cows. And then Pharaoh sees seven good heads of grain followed by seven blighted heads of grain. But the seven blighted heads of grain devour the good heads. Pharaoh says, I don't understand what this means. No one could interpret it. And so Joseph is brought before him and it says that Joseph says to Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. You see a similarity there? That's exactly what he said to the fellows in prison. So you see, Joseph, it doesn't make a difference whether you're a fellow prisoner or you're the head of the state. The answer is the same. It's not me. If you get an answer, it'll come from God. If there's something to be seen in this, God will provide it. It's not me. God's at the center. God sees. God knows. God cares. 
So Joseph, even when he stands before the Pharaoh, it's this godliness that is the perspective of his life. What God provides for Joseph to tell him is that the seven fat cows are seven years of plenty, followed by seven skinny cows are seven years of famine. So there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh takes it all in. And Joseph says, you know, if that's what's going to happen and that's what's going to happen, then maybe you should find a competent manager to make sure that when things are good, that we're preparing for the times when things are bad. And make preparation. Verse 41, Pharaoh says, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then the Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. I, I think, how did, how did Joseph take all of that in? How does he take all of that in? What was happening to him now as he interprets these dreams? That Pharaoh at this time the most powerful ruler in the world would stand up and put his ring on Joseph's hand and and a royal robe on his back maybe it was a multicolored robe I don't know a gold chain on his neck unlike the chain he wore in prison this was Pharaoh's gold chain and then he tells him here take this this is yours this kingdom of mine everything that I have is in your control no one will do anything unless it comes through you. He gives him a wife. He gives him a new life. What a difference a day makes. Just like the day before when everything went sour and downhill. This is the other side of that. When everything is turned around and Joseph no longer has to worry about being in prison or about being hungry, about being betrayed or taken advantage of. He's in control of everything. During the course of the famine, he exercised the wisdom that God gives him to prepare Israel for the lean years. But Joseph, in the context of that, is reunited with his brothers. And in bringing his brothers and his father back to Egypt and saving them from starvation, he's able to look back and recognize some purpose. Jacob lived 17 years in the land of Egypt and he died at the age of 147. And when Jacob, Joseph's father, died, there arose another issue. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to them. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus ye shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sins, for they did evil to you. And now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. I don't know if Jacob really said that. Maybe the boys made it up, trying to save their own skins, thinking that Joseph was actually going to take revenge on them now. But was this a test? Was this a spiritual challenge? For Joseph at this time, with all of this power and all of this authority and all the things that had been brought back to him that he so unjustly took away from him that now he could finally once forever settle the score and even everything out by throwing his brothers into prison or even taking their life. You think about the question we asked in the beginning when Joseph was first carried off into Egypt. What could we expect of Joseph then? What Could we expect him to serve God? Was there any anticipation he would do the right thing? 
And maybe we answered that, probably not, but he did, didn't he? And now here he is on the other side of that when everything's been given to him and he has all this prosperity and all this power. Could we expect Joseph in that context to do the right thing? What can we expect of him now? You see, what we see in Joseph's life is that those two questions at different parts of his life all have the same answer, all based on the very same thing, and that is his godliness. It mattered not whether or not he was a slave in Egypt. He was going to do the godly thing. It mattered not whether or not he was second in command in all of Egypt and had the power to seek, had the power over everyone else. He was going to do the right thing. And the questions that, and the questions of sexual immorality, and the questions of failing in terms of his responsibility to God, were all answered on the same basis. That is, his relationship to God and his godliness. And so it tells us there. That Joseph says to them, do not be afraid, for I am, am I in the place of God? There it is, you see. There it is again. It's that same word, my God. I, I, can't, I can't interpret your dream. God can interpret your dream. I, I don't know what this means. God will tell you. Am I God? You, you want, you're wondering whether or not I'm going to take your life, that I have power over your life? That I have the right to do this? I'm not God. Well, he was second in command to God, wasn't he? Among the Egyptians, he was. But he wasn't God. And no matter where Joseph was, he realized this perspective. Am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly to them. I'm often reminded that, that, that that's very well in contrast to what was said about earlier in Joseph's relationship to his brothers, that they couldn't speak a kind word to him. They couldn't even greet him, give him peace, because they hated him so much. Now on the other end, you see on this other end of life, of Joseph's life story, he's returning that evil with good. He's speaking comfort to the brothers who could not speak peace to him before. So what did Joseph do in all of this? Well, he recognized God's sovereignty over all the events, good and bad. God's in control. This gave him the perspective from which he could, you see, do what many would never have been able to do and what sometimes you and I are not willing to do. He did not seek revenge. He returned evil with good. All in understanding that God is the one who is in control. He does not need my help in dishing out justice. He doesn't need my help in making things work out. He has power over all of that. And I'm conscious that he is always at work doing it. And then, thirdly, Joseph allowed God time to work things out. Some people give up on God and His people because they don't allow God time to work it out. At any point of our Christian life, we can become discouraged, downtrodden, things are not going our way. This is not what I anticipated. And we can give up in the context of that. We can make an assessment that it's not worth serving God and we can turn away from Him and abandon Him. But if we wait on God and we remain faithful, even those very difficult times, it's certainly possible that it could work out as it did for Joseph. That he can work things out for our good. I'm not convinced that God maliciously puts obstacles in our way or that He taunts us with the, the, the sufferings of this world. But He certainly does allow us to suffer. And what the Testament presents to us is that suffering, you see, can sometimes be the very catalyst for making us the people that He wants us to be. Can bring about good in our life and ta- teach us perseverance and hope. Provide for us the opportunity to be better than we were. To make godly choices in the context of that suffering. 
God can work those things out. But He works those things out in His own time. And Joseph is testament to that. Isaiah 40 verse 31, the prophet says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah says, Strength comes by waiting on God. That you want strength? You want to be able to face the the tough times in life and to do things others maybe cannot do or are willing to do? One key to that is to wait on God. That's what Joseph did. There are times our greatest strengths come from just recognizing that God is at work and not giving up and not abandoning God. But just continuing to do what God would have us to do and to make godly choices in our life. So you want a spouse, you want a mate, you want to be married. That's what you want more than anything in life and you pray about it but it hasn't come yet. You have a choice. You can wait on God. Give, allow Him the time to work things out in your life. Well, you can go out and you can find somebody and you can have fun. You see, sexual immorality and not waiting for what God will do in your life, sexual immorality would be where many of people would turn. Giving up and falling into that trap is the opposite of godliness. There's more to say about Joseph's faith. Maybe we'll finish some of those things even in our lesson tonight. But consider this as we close. Joseph spent most of his life in an unfavorable environment to serve God. Most of his time, he stood as a servant of God all alone in an idolatrous country. His livelihood... His sustenance depended on pleasing people that cared nothing about God. There were many reasons for Joseph to give up and just go with the flow and become another Egyptian slave or serve himself. But that's not the story that's there, is it? He never lost sight of God, even in the most difficult circumstances. He was constantly aware that God was the one who saw everything and that God was the one who knew everything and that God was the one, you see, who cared about everything. And that was the platform from which he could make the most difficult choices. Are you willing to sojourn with God? Are you willing to just be a pilgrim with Him in a very difficult land where other people don't serve God and other people don't care about God, where sometimes doing the right thing can get you in more trouble than doing the wrong thing? Are you willing to make those choices? Are you a child of God? You see, that's part of the integral promises that God has made to His children. And what we're going to notice is that Joseph never lost sight of the power of God's promises in his life. From the time he was a young man to the time he was on his deathbed. What Joseph lived for was to see the fulfillment of God's promises in his own life and in the life of his children. And that's what it means to be godly. Are you willing to take that journey? You need to come through faith in the promises of God. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. If you will become a child of God, you will inherit the promises of God. And he will give you the opportunity to live before him. Always conscious that he is the one who's in control. And He will provide you the environment to do some of the most difficult things that men are called upon to do with a view of the greatest blessings that men can inherit. Will you be a sojourner with God while we stand and while we sing?